one thing I wanted you to see on the screen behind me as we begin our time this morning, uh, put, the, put the fish up there, guys, if you will. Uh, you've probably seen that. Raise your hand if you've seen this before. All right, man. Testify in church. Wait, raise your hand. You did it. You did it. <laughs> I'm playing. Uh, yeah, so behind me, uh, you may call this the Jesus fish or, or something uh, like that. Uh, I wanted to begin talking about this little emblem behind me. Uh, if I were to ask you, what, what, why is this the Jesus? Like, what does this mean? Uh, I, I don't know what you would say, but I, I think maybe a lot of us would say something like, uh, because Jesus' ministry was something about being fishers of men. Is that maybe in the ballpark of what we may say? Uh, I actually want to give a little bit of clarity to what this symbol means. It's, it's a very, very old symbol. It's not like something that was created in the 90s, you know, or anything like that. I think that's where it started to surface in my life, but that's because, yeah, I wasn't around long before that. Uh, but this is a very, 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 very old symbol for the church. Uh, go ahead and put the, the next slide that I, I gave you up there. So this is a, it's an acronym. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to rotate the fish. I just wanted to do that so I could fit the word on, on there, okay? Uh, the word is ichthus, and that means fish in Greek. But the word ichthus, and the reason I, I kind of color-coded it is because it's an acronym. The early church recognized this as an acronym. Historians and church tradition tells us that it was likely a symbol uh, from, a, from the time when the church was persecuted for the first couple of centuries. And so this emblem was used outside of the homes of Christians to signify that they were believers or even that a church met there. So this is kind of like a church sign even for early churches that met in homes. Uh, go ahead and put the next slide up there that shows you what these, and I know that those aren't in English, so I'm going to give you some context here. The words are Jesus, which is Jesus, Christos, which is Christ, Theu means of God, the next word is huios, which means son, and then the next word is soter, which means savior. Go ahead and put the next slide up there, and there it is. Jesus Christ, son of God, or God's son, savior. And so when you see this fish, it's not just fishers of men, and certainly Jesus' ministry is marked by a lot of things that have to do with fish. He multiplied them. Uh, he, he said, cast your net on the other side and you'll find them. They ate them whenever he had breakfast with his brothers in John 21. But the symbol, most on the nose, is an acronym, ichthus, which means Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And the reason that symbol was used in the early church is because the early church was being persecuted. And so this is a way that they would put out there and say, this is a Jesus place. This home is a Jesus home. This place is a place where Jesus' people meet together. It sort of gives that a new flavor, doesn't it? The word I want to focus on in that sequence of words, though, is the last word, which is Savior. When we talk about uh, coming to know Jesus, sometimes we'll ask the question, like, when did you get saved? And that word, saved sort of becomes in our culture synonymous to a phrase that we would use to mean conversion. Like when were you converted? When were you saved? But it's really a whole lot more than that. It's more than just a conversion term. To say that we're saved then and now, this is an unpopular but necessary message that one must receive in order to be saved. And that is that God is our Savior. In a world full of people who are full of ourselves, it is a self-emptying, ultimately humbling admission of guilt and a plea for rescue to call God our Savior. You ever think about that? To call Jesus Savior is a very stark admission. It's that I need saving. It's that there's nothing about me that can redeem my own self. I am empty, and so I need to be rescued. That word, soter, Savior, to be saved, it demands that one recognize self-insufficiency and soul 
desperation. And the reason I begin with that today is because that mentality was necessarily in the heart of the early church. It was necessarily in the heart of Peter's audience when he preached at Pentecost, which we're looking at these last few weeks. It's the heart of the gospel message. And as a result, fellowship, it must be the heart of us, our hearts as well. Self-insufficiency, but in Christ we have been made sufficient. Let's see this. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 36, the last verse that we looked at last week. Peter is calling them to response. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Notice the closed quote there. And with many other words, he, that's Peter, bore witness And continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Got to slow down when we read that last part, because it is a number, man. Peter was announcing baptism. But we aren't meant to connect the dots, or we are meant to connect the dots here to another guy who came baptizing. John the Baptist, right? I want you guys to make this connection before we move on. John the Baptist pointed forward to Jesus, or Peter came pointing back to Jesus. John said, John the Baptist said, he's coming. Peter said, he came. John the Baptist preached to people who had turned from God, Peter also. John the Baptist called people to repent and turn to God, Peter also. John came baptizing for what Jesus would do. Peter came baptizing because of what Jesus had done. John came and said, receive him. Peter came and said, you rejected him. Receive him. The transition verse is verse 36, that Jesus, and this is, we mentioned this last week, that Jesus, the guy that they had just killed, now has ruling authority. He's the judge, right? He has all the power in his hands, the guy that they just murdered. And so you expect the next words from the mouth of Jesus' best friend to be a statement about revenge or extermination. But that's not the next words that Peter mentions. Instead, it's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of rescue, of salvation. He says the words are, be saved. So as a result of that, I think that's our message as well. That God's salvation is a couple of things. If you're taking notes this morning, that's going to be our two main points of emphasis. Number one, that God's salvation is through one and only one. Through one and only one. Again, this kind of starts with verse 36, which is meant to be a a cut to the heart. That's why verse 37 says they were cut to the heart. Reminds me of that Bon Jovi song. What is it? Shot to the heart. Is that what it says? What's the next word? Shot to the heart and you are. Oh, there it is. You give love a bad name. Jesus gives love a good name. Man, that was such a clever thing that your pastor just did. I'm ashamed of it, to be honest with you. It wasn't in my notes, and so when that happens, I never know what's going to happen. So I apologize for the corniness of that reference. Anyway, verse 37. 
It says, now when they heard this, this is verse 36. Again, it's, you crucified Jesus, the one who's Lord in Christ, you crucified him. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That phrase, cut to the heart, it means to receive a sharp pain alongside with great sorrow. It's receiving some piece of information, some sort of news that is a sharp pain deep within intermingled with great sorrow. I remember the first time that someone close to me died. I remember getting a call on a Saturday morning. I was in college at Alabama. I was still asleep, and I got a call, uh, and it was a friend of mine or acquaintance of mine, and he knew that I was close friends with a friend of mine named Caroline. And he said, hey, man, I, just, I needed to tell you something this morning. And I was half asleep, and he just said, hey, Caroline died in a car accident last night. And it was just really quick and abrupt, and this is a 19-year-old girl, you know, a very good friend of mine. And I remember receiving that phone call, and it was just like the bottom dropped off of who I was. It was just just penetrating cut to the heart. It was this feeling of deep, sharp pain alongside with great sorrow. It's news that made my stomach hurt. And I think that this is kind of what Peter has done here. He's preached a message that is so deep and heartfelt, heart grieving, that it kind of just made their stomach hurt turn. And now the response makes perfect sense. The very Savior and King that their people had anticipated for millennia, they had stripped naked, they had beaten mercilessly, they'd given a mock crown of thorns, they tortured and killed in the most publicly shameful way they possibly could. They did that to their God and King. And Peter's here telling them about it. Cut to the heart. They're confronted with their own rebellion against God and rejection of God. And their response is exactly what it should be. What shall we do? What do we do? What's the response to that? And guys, I'm just going to suggest to you, that should be our response to the gospel. What do we do? I'm inviting you to respond that way today. Whether it be, if you're, if you're an unbeliever and you're not sure about this, your response to the gospel is, what should I do? Repent and believe. Same thing that Peter's going to say. But even those of us that are in Christ, your response should be, as a result of this message, what should we do? What should I do? God is calling us. There is a response to this. Peter's message to them is in verse 38. Here's what you do, he says. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the avoidance of, of revenge, right? No, that's not what he says. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That word repent is one that we kind of hear synonymously with confess. Like, have you repented of your sins? Or like, does that mean like to pray a prayer of, of confessing sin? That's not what that means. The word repent means to literally turn. It's a 180 degree change. You're going one way toward one thing, and it's to turn and go the opposite direction. What Peter is saying is, you need to change your mind. You need to change your heart. You need to change the way that you've been thinking. You need to change the way that you've been living. You need to just stop going this way and see that Jesus was not who you've made him to be. He is somebody else entirely. A complete 180 degree turn. A turn. And this is a New Testament reality, but it was also an Old Testament message. In fact, Peter has already been quoting Joel chapter 2 in the verses we looked at two or three weeks ago. In that same passage, Joel 2, I think it gives us a good method or a model for what repentance looks like. In Joel 2, 13, it says this. I think you should see this on the screen here. It says, and rend, means tear, tear, rend your hearts and not your garments. 
Tear your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for, listen to this, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. You know what repentance means? It means, number one, to be brokenhearted before God. Rend your hearts. It means to be torn right here, to be brokenhearted before God. But it also means, number two, to be forgiven and embraced by God. That's what he says is that rend your hearts. But the very next thing is, for he is gracious. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. What you as a parent would say to your child is that it doesn't matter what you've done. I love you. And this is what Peter is saying in this passage. It's what Joel has said prior, is that if you turn, tear your heart, turn to him, you will find a God that is gracious and merciful. He also tells them to be baptized. Now, he's not saying that this is the means of salvation. Later, Paul would say in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we are saved by grace through faith. Now, he doesn't ever say we're saved by baptism, but baptism is important. There was college football on yesterday, and maybe your team did well, maybe they didn't. That's not for me to talk about. And you're like, yeah, thank goodness. Bama fans, am I right? Anyway, they have an NFL draft every year to go and play professional football. And when the NFL draft happens, they call somebody's name. The guy goes up on stage. He shakes the hand of the commissioner, maybe uh, puts on the hat of the team. But I have a question for you. When does the player officially belong to the team? Think about it. When does the player officially belong to that team? Is it when he gets a paycheck? Is it when he plays a game? Is it when he contributes to the team? No. And I would say it's not even when he puts the hat on, on stage. The time that he belongs to the team is when he signs that contract, signs that dotted line, and it is made official on paper before a game is even played that this guy is on this team. Here's why I say that. Repentance and faith sign the contract. Repentance and faith sign the contract. Jesus, by his spirit, enters into our lives. Repentance and faith, by grace we've been saved through faith. And God changes our hearts. A torn heart that calls upon the healer of hearts signs the contract. But the player eventually puts on the uniform and it is plain to see to the watching world whose team that guy belongs to. I say that to say, though not a prerequisite for being on God's team, baptism is like putting on the uniform. It's wearing God's uniform. It's an outward public sign that you've made it clear who you belong to, whose team you belong to. A phrase that I say all the time when talking about baptism with people that come to be baptized, and that is that baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. Baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. Repentance and faith, but baptism is an outward display of that reality. Not the transformation itself, but a demonstration of that. It's not what saves, but baptism is also not optional. It doesn't make it optional. This is a command in Scripture, a very clear command in Scripture. We look at a guy named John the Baptist, which we mentioned just a moment ago. Baptist doesn't mean that's what denomination he was. <laughs> it literally, he was, he was John the Baptizer. Baptize is a verb. Baptizo is the verb. It literally means to dip. It means to immerse. He was John the Dipper. And that doesn't mean that he walked around with a can of skull in his back pocket. Okay? 
John the Dipper. It meant that he put people under water. He, he had a, a name that was known for who he was. He was the guy who dipped people. The method matters is why I say that. The method matters. The reason we are a, a church that immerses people, believers, in baptism is because this is the model that we see in Scripture. Every time the word baptism is used in Scripture, it literally means to put underneath water. It always means that. And so, this is the method that we do as a church body because this is the method that John used and Peter used and Paul used and the old early church used. And the reason why that was the method to be dipped is because it signifies some really neat things. Number one, it signifies death. You know, when we roll the baptistry in here, it is a big, deep rectangle with a bunch of witnesses around. There's something else in our world that is a big, deep rectangle with a bunch of witnesses around. And what is that? A funeral, a grave, right? We do the same thing. And that's the same thing. As what, that's what baptism signifies, is that this person is coming to be buried. It's, it's, a, it's a death celebration, though. A death celebration that that person has been buried with Christ in baptism. They've been buried with him. But the next part is they've been raised to walk in newness of life. That baptistry doesn't just symbolize death. It also symbolizes resurrection. I tell this to people that are baptized. Every single one of them hear me say this joke, and that is that what would happen if I were to hold you under the water indefinitely and never bring you up? They'd say, well, now I'm a little bit scared to be baptized. This guy's a maniac. No, what would happen is they would die because, and there's a, there's a big point to that, and that is that that water symbolizes death, burial. It is a, a watery grave, but they're pulled out of that grave. And that's the, that's the message, that's the symbol, right? That God has buried our former selves in Christ and raised us to live in newness of life. But we also baptize with water, not chocolate syrup or a Gatorade bath, as festive and fun as that may seem to some of you. I think it'd be kind of cruel. It symbolizes cleansing. The reason we use water is because we are saying this person has been plunged beneath a cleaning flood. We sing about that flood, the blood of Jesus. They haven't just been buried. They've been resurrected. They haven't just been put underwater. They've been washed. And so the reason I say that is not to get on a soapbox about baptism. Peter is giving this, he's given this ordinance and this method because it is the very symbol of Jesus's message. He has washed away our sins. Praise God. We have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Glory be to God. Baptism is the symbol of the outward demonstration of the inward transformation of God. The fact of the matter is, church, we have, apart from God, a deadness problem. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Baptism. And we respond every time we are confronted with that message. In other words, we should ask ourselves, or ask God, what shall we do? What shall we do? What would you have me do in response to this message? If you're a Christ follower, I can give you some answers to that question. Two very simple ones. What shall you do? Number one, you should rest in him. You should rest in the one. The one, the only one. Is to say, my 
My, my value, my merit before a holy God is not based on my performance, my living, my whatever. It's based on what he has done for me in dying for me, being buried for me, and praise God, coming back to life for me, that I too may have newness of life. We rest in that one, the only one, the only means through which we can be saved. But we also live for one because we are called to go and live in newness of life. We're not just to be saved, to sit on our hands and say, well, thank goodness I can get out of hell now. No, God has saved us, and with that, redeemed a life to go and live for the glory of God. And if you are a saved individual who have been rescued from the condemnation of your sin, what shall you do? Rest in that work and live for the one who accomplished it. But if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have that security today, what shall you do? You shall be saved through the one, the only one. You can look around and seek, and you will never find Hope, joy, peace, you'll never find any of it, save in the one who has died for you. God's salvation is through one and only one. Number two, God's salvation is for anyone and everyone. God's salvation is for anyone and everyone. When I say everyone, that is not to say that all will be saved, that is to say that all can be saved. Everyone. That's why he says back in verse uh, 21, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whoever, everyone, shall be saved. Not to say that all will be saved, everyone will be saved, but to say that all can be saved. Verse 39 continues and says, for the promise, that is the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says right there at the end of verse 38. Receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children. And listen to this, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In context, you got to remember, right? This is at Pentecost. You have 120 people that have been filled with the Spirit of God as a fire, as it says, we saw this three weeks ago. 120 people that are speaking in tongues. And I don't mean that they're speaking weird utterances. They're speaking languages. You've got all these people, these regions that are represented that have come together at Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And now they're hearing in their own dialect the mighty works of God. I'm just quoting from Peter's uh, sermon here. The mighty works of God are being heard. The Spirit of God is at work. And Peter says that it's the effect of the Spirit of God that has been breathed into them. He then quotes Joel 2, which we've already talked about that, so I'm not going to dwell there. But what Peter is saying is the Spirit who has breathed life into these 120 people, that same Spirit of God can breathe life into you. That's the invitation. He's like, you respond, he'll do that in your life. For who? He says, for all who are far off. For all who are far off. Ephesians 2.13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. I'm going to read that one again, man. That one to preach, right? But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, separated from God, have been brought near by works? No. Merit? No. By the blood of Christ. Guys, sin separates, God reconciles. Sin separates, but God reconciles. And he goes on with this idea in verse 40, and he says, or Peter has finished his sermon, or, or a little bit. One more comment at the end of verse 40. But it says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, and this is just a paraphrase, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 40 means that he said it in a lot of other ways. You know, if you were to read this sermon from beginning to end, starting in verse 17 through verse 40, 
that's a pretty short sermon. You're like, man, we should really do more like Peter and preach short sermons. I don't want to hear that. You just save that, all right? No, it says with many other words. So right back at you. Many other words. That's probably, yeah, I'd say at least 45 minutes of words, wouldn't you say? Many other words. This was not a short and sweet sermon. So don't get any ideas. No, look, man, the emphasis of this is very simple. It's not on the many words. The emphasis is on he bore witness. He bore witness. And it's the same root word that was used in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when it says, you will go and be my witnesses. It says, Peter bore witness. He exhorted them is the next part of that. It says, verse 40, he exhorted them. It means to strongly urge a response. So what happens is that he doesn't just bring the facts that's bearing witness. He also calls them to respond to the facts. Isn't that preaching? Bring the truth of God's word, but then call the people to respond. The way that Peter says it, at least in the ESV, at the end of verse 40, he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. I'll be honest with you guys, save yourselves is a pretty bad translation from the English Standard Version. And this is my preferred translation, uh, and it really is a good translation. But right there, I think, is a really bad translation. Literally, it does say, save yourselves. But uh, the reason why that's not a great translation is because the, the verb tense, not to, not to nerd out or anything on you, but the verb tense of the, words sa- of the word save there is not something that you are doing to yourself. It's a passive verb, meaning it's something that is done to you. So what's happening is Peter is saying, Save yourselves. Do what you need to do to ensure that someone else saves you. You do the thing, but understand that it's not you that's doing the thing. It is God that is doing the saving. It's a passive tense verb. The verb is being done to them, not by them. In other words, there is something that you and I and they can do to ensure that God saves them. They need to respond. But salvation is an act of God. And guys, this is our mission. That God's offer requires man's response. God's offer requires man's response. It is simple. It's John 3, 16, given as a command. Be saved by believing or perish by not. Be saved or perish. And that sounds like a harsh message, doesn't it? Be saved or else, or die. It sounds like a hateful message, a harsh message, but guys, that is the most loving message, and we must say it urgently, but lovingly, and you can do both. It is said by many, hatefully, but it can be, and it is also said by some, not heavily enough. There's a fine line between being so gentle that it subtracts the urgency of the gospel message and being so harsh that it subtracts the love of the gospel message, and you can do both. I'll give you an example. Would it be hateful or would it be loving if a parachute instructor sees someone that's about to jump out of the plane not wearing a parachute, if they just said, who am I to impose if you believe you can survive the drop without a parachute? I, that's not my place. You know, I'm not going to impose my belief in parachutes on you. You just jump. You Live and let live, man. We'll see how long they live and let live, right? No, that's not. doesn't make any sense. Well, I don't want to force my belief in parachutes on you. That would be psychotic. But we treat evangelism like that sometimes. And say, well, I don't want to impose this explicit gospel, this 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 very exclusive gospel to you. Hey, maybe your way's fine. I mean, it's just a parachute and you're jumping from a plane, but hey, live and let live. But that is exactly the method that the world wants us to preach. And I would suggest to you, that's exactly the method that Satan would have us preach. That we just live and let live all the way to the grave. And our brothers and sisters, our family members, our moms and dads, our coworkers, our friends, 
they perish. Satan loves that method. Guys, it is not loving to ignore man's dire need. It's hateful. And it's not hateful to confront man's dire need. We can speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That's from Ephesians 4, 15. In other words, listen, living as a good example is a good thing. Let your light shine. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine. Live with good works. But living as a good example is not all that you were called to be. That's not all that we are called to be as God's people. Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And he's not saying pastors. He's saying believers. Jesus, not just Paul, Jesus said this in Matthew 9, 37 and 38 when it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Guys, let your light shine should apply to more than just good works, but also to a good message of a good God to save people, those who fail to meet the standard of goodness, because God met the standard of goodness, and that's the only means through which man may be saved. Save from sin. Perish or believe and find eternal life. Saved from sin, but not only saved from sin. He says saved from this crooked generation. I think this is an interesting thing that Peter says here. It's steeped in Old Testament language. He's clearly got an Old Testament mindset here. He's talking to a bunch of Jewish people. This is a term that's used for God's people several times, referring to the Exodus generation, especially uh, in the Old Testament, constantly calling God's people a crooked or a corrupt generation. And I'm going to say to you guys this. We, too, live among a crooked generation. We, too, live among a crooked generation. We must be willing, in other words, to be out of step with the world or the times or whatever you want to say if it means that we are being in step with Christ. we got to be willing to say, the world's going to reject me, and that's okay. That's okay. If that's what it means to be accepted by God, to walk in step with Him, then that's okay. Jesus was rejected by the world, and I'm willing for that to be my case, too. Jesus was the Prince of Peace, but not because he preached peace with men. It's because he made it possible to have peace with God. Guys, we cannot drink the Kool-Aid of the culture. We can't be subscribers to the American dream that your purpose on this life is to work, make a lot of money, have some kids, be happy, fill your cup, live life to the fullest, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You grow old, maybe you have some grandkids, You retire, and then you just die. What a waste. There's no eternal value in that. As beautiful as it is to have things, as wonderful as it is to have children and grandchildren and the joys that those things may bring, at the end of the day, if they are not rooted in Christ Jesus, they are meaningless. You know, The men's uh, small group that I'm a part of, uh, we're walking through Job. And in Job chapter 1, it says that, and I'm not going to go into Job's whole story because that would take a while. Um, It says that Satan's goal with Job is that he wants Job to curse God. And so Satan's way of doing that is to try to strip all the stuff away from Job's life. He says, it's because he's rich. You take all the stuff away, he'll curse you. He's wrong. 
That's not what happens in the story. But I think that we're the opposite of that. I think the way that Satan attempts to get us to turn from God is not to take everything away from us. I think it's to give us everything. We are absolutely blinded by the things that we have. We are blinded by the American dream. We're blinded by the pursuit of happiness. We're blinded by Saturdays with football. We're blinded by working 40 hours a week and then saying, I can't, I can't, I can't do Bible study with the kids before bed. I'm exhausted. We're blinded by how tired we are. We're blinded by the, the vanity of seeking things and having a full bank account and eating delicious food. We could do to suffer a little bit. How's that for a popular message? The places where the church suffers the most are the places where the church is growing the most. That's not a happenstance. That's not a coincidence. It's because when you got nothing else to lean on, you lean on Jesus. But we got all kinds of stuff to lean on. And Satan loves it. We're being lulled to sleep and we are distracting ourselves to death. Who cares if you're in step with the way of the culture, if you're out of step with the way of your Lord Jesus? You know, at the same time, I, I think being out of step with the world, you know, one of the things that you're seeing a lot right now in so-called Christianity, and I could pick on megachurches, but this isn't just true of megachurches, but there's this winsome Christianity movement of like, as long as we all call ourselves Christians, we're all the same, and hey, we can affirm that lifestyle because, you know, Jesus wasn't hateful, so we shouldn't draw a hard line on that thing, whether it be, I won't even go to examples for the sake of time, but there's this movement of like, you know, we've got to be it's, it's love everybody at all costs, and don't, don't say anything that's hard or that steps on anybody's toes. That's not the way of Jesus. It's the message of Paul, but Paul isn't Jesus. And so they say, let's do Jesus. Let's do love for everybody and never step on anybody's toes. Can I just tell you that is absolute garbage? Jesus stepped on toes. Jesus was unashamedly a person of the truth. In fact, yes, he's the Prince of Peace, but Matthew 10, 34 and 35 says this. Do not think that I have come. Jesus is saying this. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to bring a sword. That means division. He's saying, I'm co- I've come to separate people. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He goes on to talk about other family dynamics and says, people are going to be against each other because of my message. Does that sound like what you hear all the time? You hear, oh, Jesus is just love. And he is, God is love. But he absolutely brought a sword. He absolutely brought a message that was an offense to people. Guys, Jesus was the prince of peace, not because he brought peace with all kinds of people. We're all just going to hug each other. That's not Jesus' message. Jesus' message was peace because he made it possible to have peace with a holy God that we only had wrath from. That's the peace that God brings, that Jesus brings. And one day, the sword will be destroyed, and we will have peace on earth. But for now, because we hold to the gospel, we will have conflict on earth. The world hates you, he says, because it hated me first. Guys, standing for the truth will make you an enemy of the world, of so-called friends, maybe even of your own family is what that verse means, but you will be a friend of God. And I'm just here to tell you that's worth it. That's worth it. Peter's preaching a hard word here, y'all. 
And sometimes that got him beaten up. And sometimes it looks like verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Sometimes Peter got beaten up for that message. Other times, God produced a revival. Guys, crowd size is not necessarily a good metric. We can get a crowd. We'll water down the gospel. We'll take out the gospel entirely. We'll preach a very self-empowering, ear-tickling message. We'll have a big draw. We'll, we'll bring in famous musicians and be able to do a big concert. Crowd will come if we do that. Guys, that's not what we're called to do. We're not just here to call a crowd. Peter had a big crowd in front of him, but he could have walked away with zero converts and he'd have still been faithful. Peter preached an offensive gospel. People responded, not just with attendance, but with a surrendered response. And it didn't always go that way. Sometimes it meant they got a flogging, a beating. But when revival was occurring, please hear this, when revival was occurring and is recurring, God was and is always in it. What's happening in this church right now is not the work of man, it's the work of God. God is at work in this church. God is the one that's producing revival. That's not a pastor. That's not a staff. That's not a program. That's our God. It's not about how many attenders we have, how many people we reach. It's not about how appealing our programs are. A true movement of God is based on whether or not people are coming to admit their self-insufficiency, their soul desperation, and laying it down at the foot of the cross so that they can take up their own cross and most importantly, take up their new life. God is moving here. There are people that are being saved, receiving Christ for the first time. But there are also people that are tired of being lukewarm Christians in this church. That are truly choosing to finally respond with commitment to Jesus. And maybe that's you. Maybe today, God's rattling your cage. And it's time to wake up. That this is not just your weekend. This is your life. And if it's not your life, it's not yours at all. It's all or nothing. You choose to receive or reject him every day. Every day is a new call. Every day requires a new response. Will you make him Lord? You know, in John, I love this man. Jesus is being followed by a bunch of people. Then he said some things that were unpopular in John chapter 6. He said some things that were very unpopular. It's hard to hear. And he put out a call, and he's like, all right, who's still with me? And John 6, verse 66 through 68 says this. And after this, many of his disciples, that's not the 12, that's droves of disciples. Many of his disciples turned back. They no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? You want to tell you who responds? Peter. Peter responds. So Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Guys, that's us today. This is an unpopular message. Walking with Jesus will make you enemies of the world. And when that happens, I just want you to visualize Jesus turning to you and saying, Caleb, what are you going to do now? Are you going to continue? Or are you going to go? And will we just share Peter's commitment? Lord, to whom shall we go? That's all meaningless. You have everything. The takeaway here is exactly what we see in our passage. 
to be cut to the heart, to have a repentant heart, and to be baptized. First, to be cut. The gospel is not a gentle message of suggestion. It's an offensive message of transformation. The gospel is not a gentle message of suggestion. It's an offensive message of transformation. And when we hear the word offensive, man, in this world just love to talk about what's offensive. Oh, I'm so offended by that. Oh, I'm so offended by that. Oh, I'm so offended by that. And it has this negative connotation, like because something's offensive, it makes it bad. Guys, this is a good message. It's an offensive message but it is a good message. There's nothing more offensive to your soul and yet so beautiful to your soul. This is not a bad word. The gospel means good news, but to receive it, you must be offended. We must be, but it's the truth. We need Jesus. It's also a message not only to be cut to the heart, but to repent, to turn. It means that we are called out of the culture. You should stand out from the people around you. They should see you and say, there is a light coming from that individual. And for you, it may be time to re-up your commitment to God and saying, I do not stand out in this world. God, redeem that in me and work in me. Continue to mold me and move me to honor you. But it may be time for you to be baptized. It may be time for you to be baptized. You may even be a member of this church, perhaps, and somehow I've never been baptized as a believer. I don't know. I've only been here for three and a half years. I know you had a good pastor before me, but I know that things happen. And you may have some shame in your heart, and you're thinking, well, now it's too late. What are they going to say? They're going to praise God is what they're going to do. They're going to thank God for that. All the, the chatter in your ears about, yeah, but don't. I mean, come on, that's so embarrassing and shameful. That's Satan trying to rob God of glory and you of a blessing. Tell him to shut up. Tell him to be quiet, to get lost. He's robbing God of glory, and you have a blessing. And if you're in tandem with him, you're doing the same. For some of you guys, it's time to be baptized. Baptism is the perfect physical action to commemorate and celebrate our spiritual transaction. It is a beautiful work. And no, it is not a prerequisite for salvation, but it is also is not an optional method either. God commands us to be baptized. And if you have not done that as a believer, man, I encourage you to do, that, do so. Because what would you say about a player on your sports team that never put on the uniform? What would you say? He ain't in it. He ain't dedicated. He's so in discord in the locker room. He ain't on the team. Now, he's on the team, but he ain't on the team. That's what you'd say about someone that refused to put on the uniform. And I'm here to tell you, submit. It's time to put on the uniform. Put on the uniform and boldly say, proudly say, I'm bought in. I'm on the team, and I want to give glory to the one that made me sign the contract. Buy in, man. Be obedient. And look, I know that it makes you nervous, but let me just tell you this. And I know that reading the testimony and stuff, look, the more we've done that, the more affirmed I've been in doing that. Because I hear testimony after testimony. And I'm not talking about the one in the water. I'm talking about the testimonies of you guys that say, man, my heart was blessed by that. Man, my soul was so enriched by that. I came to Jesus because of that person's testimony. True story. We have baptism next week, by the way. And God used a testimony to do that. Excited to celebrate that with you guys. Does it make you nervous? Maybe so. But I'm just going to suggest to you that five minutes of courage is worth it for an eternity of peace that you've been obedient. Five minutes of courage, five minutes of courage for an eternity that you've been obedient and the peace of knowing that you've walked according to God's instruction. I'm going to ask the praise team to, to join me up here as we lean into a time of response. I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes, bow your heads, please.
I titled the message today, Call and Response. So far, I've given you the call. And I think, hopefully, more importantly, God has given you the call. I'm just a human instrument, a vessel. But man, my hope is that God is impressing something on your heart. And look, it may be that you're a Christ follower. Praise God if that's the case. But he may be prompting your heart to renew that commitment to him today to lean on him as the one, the only one through which you may be saved, to find commitment in that, to rest in that. But it may be that, that you've never really nailed that down, that you've never come to a point where you can say, for certain, if something were to happen to me when I left church today, I know exactly where I would go. And if there's some uncertainty there, I'm here to tell you the call is on the table. How will you respond? And I know, man, that when that happens, when that call is out there, Satan does all that he can to chatter in your ears and stifle the Spirit's work in your heart. And I'm just encouraging you to tell him to be quiet. Listen to the right guy. And maybe God is calling you to be baptized, and that absolutely terrifies you. But I'm telling you, it should make you nervous. It's no small thing. It's a huge step of obedience but I've never baptized one person that regretted it. Five minutes of courage for an eternity of peace that you've been obedient.